Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode 45 of The Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. This episode is brought to you by my friends at Unsettled. Unsettled is a 30-day co-working retreat experience for entrepreneurs, creatives, freelancers, and folks going through intentional transitions. They lead retreats in some of the most inspiring destinations in the world, Cape Town, Barcelona, Bali, just to name a few. I did uh, Medellin in Colombia with them last year, and it was everything I could have imagined. Beautiful apartment, great co-working space, incredible community, and you get to be a part of their global community that they've created, and lots of incredible local connections and experiences. Go to beunsettled.co slash Nathan, and they're going to give you $100 off, so do yourself a favor, beunsettled.co slash Nathan, and prepare for one of the best months of your life. Hey guys, welcome to the show where every week I'm helping you create your version of an extraordinary life. And this week I have a book review for you on The Big Leap, one of my favorite books by Dr. Gay Hendricks and my guest Derek Deal, talking all things spirituality and his business helping to use Darwinian evolution principles to help people grow in their lives and in their health and fitness. Looking forward to that. Last week, I told you all about the new theme for the year, which is helping you to live an extraordinary life. And over the next couple of episodes, I'm just going to help you understand some of the foundations that you need to have in place to create an extraordinary life. And I was thinking about who the people are that I look up to. And one of my favorite people in the world is Joe Rogan, who has a podcast similar to this, maybe a little bit bigger, but not too much. And he is a guy that I just admire so much because he lives an extraordinary life. And why do I say that? For those of you that uh, don't know Joe, Joe hosts the Joe Rogan Experience. It's one of the biggest podcasts in the world, something like 90 million downloads an episode or something, something ridiculous and incomprehensible. And he also has all these other elements to his life. And that's what I want to really touch on today is this time that we're living in. As we move away from the industrial age, nine to five job, working hard, slaving away at something you don't enjoy. So one day maybe you can retire and enjoy a small portion of your life. As we move away from that and we move more into this collaborative economy world where everybody is going to be encouraged to bring their unique gifts into the economy and share them with everybody else. As we move towards that, you have to understand to get the most out of it, what you want to bring to the world. And the reason I bring up Joe is because he's the perfect example of how to do that successfully. Joe, he's been quoted as saying that all he does is find things that he loves to do and then just keep doing them until he gets really good at them. So Joe is a successful stand-up comedian. He's been doing comedy for over 20 years. He has regular spots at the Comedy Store in LA and is what would be considered one of the top comedians of our time. And Joe will admit freely, he's not a natural comedian. It's something he's had to work out, but he loves comedy and he loves the art of stand-up comedy. So he's poured himself into becoming a master of that. Second of all, he's a huge fan of Brazilian jiu-jitsu and MMA. And so Joe practices MMA, he practices jiu-jitsu. He's a huge proponent of people going into jiu-jitsu to learn more about fitness and themselves and as a tool for personal development. And so Joe's done that, but he's also become the one of the lead commentators of the MMA. So if you tune into any MMA match, you might hear Joe Rogan as a commentator. So he gets to do another thing that he loves. And then thirdly, he has his podcast, which has gone on to be one of the most successful podcasts of all time. And Joe just brings on all the people that he finds interesting and to talk about the things that he enjoys. So he brings on a lot of stand-up comedians. He brings on MMA fighters. He's interested in human performance and biomechanics. So he brings in Dr. Rhonda Patrick to talk about that. 
and he's interested in psychedelics. So my point is that he just surrounds himself with people and all the things that bring him joy and that he loves to do. And he's found a way to make that work for him and create an income and a life from it. And I imagine a very significant income. So if you look at your life differently, don't look at life as how can I find another job that might make me happy? Look at the future in a completely different way because it's available now that you can create a life all around the things that you love to do. So find what are the things that I love to do and how would I actually spend my day and eventually look at how could I do that and make money from it so that it can support myself. But the seed I want to plant for you is that the world that we're going into now is a world where you can create a life around the things that bring you the most joy. So let me plant that seed for you now. Now time for a new segment on the show. It's going to be a review segment where I review all the books and resources, courses, people that I've used or come across that I find extremely helpful on my journey. And this week, I want to recommend the book that I have told the most people about. It's a book called The Big Leap by Dr. Gay Hendricks. And I give this to all my clients when they're first starting out on their coaching agreements. Because when we start out to achieve something big, and especially you know when we're working with a coach, we start getting success early on, and then it may be the most success we've had in our lives. And Dr. Hendricks says that we all have a thing called the upper limit problem. And it's this limit of happiness that we believe, you know, we can have in our life. And then when we exceed that level of happiness, then usually we have to sabotage ourselves or something has to go wrong to bring us back down to that level of happiness that we we think we deserve. It's called the upper limit problem. And Dr. Hendricks gives a lot of examples for that. Like you have an amazing day at work and everything's going really well at work. Maybe you get a promotion, maybe you get a pay rise. And then you come home and within half an hour, you're arguing with your partner over something trivial. And there's just that sense that you can never have it all. Everything can't always be good. So he calls that the upper limit problem. Key concepts of the book, the upper limit problem, having awareness of it is the first thing that we do upper limit ourselves. And also the genesis of the upper limit, where it comes from. He gives four places that it comes from, usually in childhood, and you can identify which one of those you know relates to you the most. He talks about the different uh, zones that we have. You would have heard the term the zone of genius before. That comes from the big leap. And he talks about the other zones, the zone of excellence, the zone of competence, and the zone of incompetence, and how we want to move our time towards the zone of genius. He talks about integrity and how important it is to stay in integrity. And then he has this mantra. He calls it the ultimate success mantra that he uses that is in direct defiance of the upper limit and overcoming the upper limit. And one of my favorite quotes in the book is, many of our fears are based on the workings of the ego, the part of us that's focused on getting recognition and protecting us from social ostracism. In the zone of genius, your ego is unnecessary. Living there is its own reward. In the zone of genius, you cease to care about recognition or ostracism. Once you make a commitment to inhabiting your full potential, your ego is suddenly faced with extinction. It's been making excuses for you throughout your life. Now, if your commitment to taking your big leap is sincere, your ego will need to be shown the door. Unless you're lucky, your ego will probably not go quietly. It has a lifetime of employment history behind it. That's The Big Leap, and it's the first book I recommend when you're trying to live an extraordinary life. So go and check it out. I'll put the link down below and grab that book on Amazon. You won't regret it. And my guest today is the wonderful Derek Deal. Derek and I have become great friends over the last couple of months. We met in London at the end of last year. We just had it off and have since spent time in New York together and had a couple of calls together. And I just love Derek's outlook. He's a deep thinker. He's a deeply spiritual man. And that's why we connected. I love the way he looks at the world and the way he combines ancient spiritual teachings with some modern and futuristic 
beliefs and insights that we now have. And so I love this conversation. I think you will too. And without further ado, enjoy this personal conversation with the powerful Derek Deal. Yeah, you know, I, I grew up as what's called a third culture kid, which is basically someone who grows up across cultures. My dad was with the Foreign Service uh, and my mom is Bolivian, 100 percent. So my dad met her when he was stationed in Bolivia. Uh, you know, magic happened. And then I was born into uh, in Ecuador and then kind of lived in Bolivia, El Salvador, the Dominican Republic, came to the States for three, four years, then back to Colombia towards the end of their kind of uh, the drug wars the, that was going down, which was an interesting time, and then came back to the States, to the D.C. area. So, you know, it's interesting because when I was in college, I took a class. It was like on the lifespan of the human development. And in it, there was a chapter on third culture kids. Before then, I had no idea that people who grew up like me had a term. But uh, what like blew my mind was in this chapter on this textbook written by random people I never knew. <laughs> They're describing me almost to a T. And I was like, holy crap, there's something to this. Like the two big ones was one, because we move around a lot, we kind of identify less with country and identify a lot more with say like earth or the family. And that always seemed true to me. Like when people say where I was from, I always, I mean, I gave them a brief spiel, but I was like, I am American. I am Latin American and I identify with both, but it's just like less salient in my mind. And then the other one was, they said that like third culture kids tend to have a intense desire for like military to, to join the military or to be foreign service officers. And I found that interesting because uh, you know, my brother is a Marine Corps officer, a uh, former Marine Corps officer. And then both my younger brother and I, we both wanted to be, you know, special operation warriors. And it was like an intense drive for us. So it was kind of uh, eye opening to see my own like motivations being described by this field of science. You know, them not having ever interviewed me it kind of taught me that, all right, maybe there's some like laws of nature going on, if you will, psychologically, like gravity is the physics. And uh, that kind of got me super interested in that whole, you know, majoring in philosophy and doing a lot of philosophy of mind and neuroscience work in college. But yeah, those were kind of the big pieces from my childhood. Yeah, it's so interesting. So what was it like growing up in Latin America? Is that, what, what defines that? Mm, that's a good question. Well, one, it's heavy on the food. So <laughs> the food's amazing, <laughs> man. Yeah, you, uh, that's a, it's a big part. You know, each country has their own cuisines. Um, one of the biggest distinctions or differences I noticed is that in Latin America, you would, in one household, it's not uncommon to have like your grandparents, your parents, and even extended family kind of living in the same house or nearby. So you have like these really extensive kind of familial networks, like there's not really a nuclear family. That's kind of a foreign concept. And uh, the other big piece, too, is like they, the rule of law is, let's call it flexible. I mean, I remember in high school, you know, just being in a car driving with friends and, and you know, a little booze was involved and the cop pulls us over. And then the guy driving, my friend who's a Colombian, just like puts 20 pesos, you know, and we're good to go. So it's like, that's like the rule of law. Now, I don't mean that as like a, a dink on Latin America, but just they're like the socioeconomic cultures is just different. Like you, like the, the big one, one other big one too, especially since I was there during high school in those kind of years is 
you know, alcohol is really not that big a deal. Like people were just, since there's not heavy laws and since there's not this big stigma, like you really don't see binge drinking that much. Whereas when I got back to the States, I definitely got wrapped up in that a bit. And I thought, you know, at the time I was like, oh, it's just me being, you know, a wild animal. But I think there's definitely an element of cultural differences in how they approach things like the, um, you know, acceptable drug use, things like that, like alcohol. And then also the fact that there's, it's just there are such strong kind of familial ties that you have. Uh, I guess some people will call it more cultural, although I, that's a discussion to be had. But I feel there's just, because it's just older, you can really sense into it not being uncommon to just on a weekend go and you have 20, 30 different family members there. Whereas, you know, here in the States, you know, my extended family on the my my dad's side, like I, that's less frequent, right? Like it's actually an effort to get a bunch of people together. So it's not good or bad, but it's definitely one of the differences. Uh, yeah, I always think it, it's funny when you see that, like the same thing in Asia, right? Like a lot of times the grandparents will live at home with the family. The, the concept of a retirement home is not, not that common. And you know, all the cousins and aunties and uncles will come over for dinner on a Tuesday or something like that. And you think, man, like in Western culture, <laughs> it's that that's a hassle. Everyone's like, oh, I guess, well, if the family has to come over, well, we could probably do it on Sunday. Whereas everywhere else, you know, all the families are showing up all the time and that's just part of your day-to-day life. Yeah, yeah I really feel like, uh, you know, those things like Alexa or the Google Mini, like that's going to become a very staple to the family and like helping us organize. We're like, all right, Alexa, organize our family reunion. Yeah. And it'll, <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah, and I guess it, so there's, there's upsides and downsides to that that way of living. Yeah, yeah. It's um, something I think about a lot, you know. Well, I, I, I wouldn't say like that I miss it because now it's a big part of my life is like actively creating um, kind of deep connections with people. My understanding of family is very different now. I guess the, the lines are a lot less uh, clear for me in the sense that, you know, my biological family and then those who I'm really close with through friendship, that's when I say the word family, like it's, I don't really distinguish that much between them. And so, you know, I think it's kind of like family is what you make it or home is what you make it type of thing. And, and why I guess I get hung up less on the word family and, and I emphasize more like deep connection is because for me, like family connotes like a kind of like a warm and supportive environment. Um, and obviously that's influenced by my particular family. So I think that, you know, if that's not a person's like common, if that's not their experience with family, that word could certainly connote something different. But like for me, it's more about like, yeah, how, who, what's the number of people I can just talk about anything with, or just be, you know, like the Latin word for personality is persona, which means mask. So like, what's the number of people that I can be with without my mask on? And that's what I mean by family. So that's like a convoluted answer, hopefully not Nathan, but yeah, I don't really miss it because my definition of family, my understanding of that has changed. Yeah. Right. So did you speak English to your father and then is it Spanish to your mother? Is that how it worked? Uh, it did. I mean, my dad was fluent in Spanish too, uh, especially because of his job. So we spoke, I learned Spanish and English kind of at the same time, but then over time, English ended up being kind of the a dominant language, both with my mom and my dad. Although the one thing about having a Latin mother is, um, so English was her second language. So we'll normally converse in English, but when I did something to screw up and now my mom's mad, it goes to Spanish real quick <laughs> because it, she can speak faster and the curse words are all juicy in, in Spanish. So yeah. Funny. 
what, what was New Zealand like? I'm actually, I've never been there or, or familiar with the culture. Yeah, it's um, a very unique culture. So it's, we have our own our own culture. It's very much derived from uh, the UK and Ireland. So yeah, there's a lot of that Anglo-Christian culture. We're not like a, a heavily re- religious society, but heavily influenced by that. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a very... I always say to people, like, if you imagine 150, 200 years ago, the people that uh, were told, hey, we found a new country on the other side of the planet and it's going to take three months to get there, but there's nobody there and we can kind of start afresh and you'll get a big piece of land, more than you could ever get here. Who's up for that adventure? <laughs> you imagine <laughs> yeah. the type of people that said yes to that? I think that <laughs> that's that's who we are. So very innovative, very adventurous, pretty friendly, very egalitarian type of place. And then sort of influenced a little bit by our isolation, I would say. Yeah, that just makes me want to visit it that much more, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's a really, representative. really special place. You know, it's funny, we have uh, a thing called an OE, which is an overseas experience. And that's super common in New Zealand that when someone graduates high school at 17 or 18, they'll, you know, let's say half of them will do an OE. They'll head overseas. So it's like, been held here in isolation on these islands for 18 years and now we get released out to, to go and see what the, the big wide world is all about so that kind of gives you an idea and I read somewhere that there's like a million New Zealanders there's about four and a half million New Zealanders in New Zealand and there's something like a million New Zealanders living overseas or something like that so oh, wow. it's it's that, that gives you an idea of, of the type of people as well. I'm interested for you when you, you know, do you still go back to Latin America? Do you go back to Bolivia a lot or Ecuador? Yeah, I uh, was back last year and then the year before that. And I, I try to, like, at least yearly um, is something I make it a point to do. You know, I have family in La Paz, Bolivia, which is the capital city. So I visited them a couple years ago. Um, it had been a 10 year stretch of time before that. And I mean, part of that was just formative years and things like that. But, uh, you know, going back, I realized just how much I missed it. Haven't been in the States for uh, quite a bit of time now. And then last year, went back to, to Peru, to the Amazon area. You, you can kind of largely group like Peru, Bolivia, Ecuador, and parts of Colombia and parts of Brazil. It's kind of like the kind of Inca empire was was in there. So they're all like uh, very similar in culture and, and, and whatnot. So it's definitely going back to that part of the world in particular, especially the, the Amazon is, is something you know, yearly, I, I, I try to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, so cool. My mom is actually Canadian and so not hugely different from New Zealand, but I've always appreciated having the ability to go to another country so far away and feel at home. Yeah. That is quite an experience actually. It's funny you call that out. Cause I, I never, I think that's another piece of like the third culture kid is you really, and, and maybe just more broadly, like the more you travel to different countries and cultures, you get to see just how much more in common we have than are different. So mm. like this sense of patriotism changes from less of like, this is me and you are distinct from, oh, these are the cool things about where I happen to live and seeing how they're complementary or supportive or, you know, enhanced by learning those same characteristics in a different country, you know? Yeah. It's interesting you bring that up because I, I feel very much a citizen of the world. Like I've you know, I've been living all over the world for the last four years and I just kind of drift from place to place. I still identify with New Zealand, not as my home, but as who I am. And when I go back to New Zealand, I realize how much I love that part of me. 
and how much, again, not that it feels like home, but how much I realize, oh man, so much of this place defines how I see the world and how I move through the world. Yet I still feel like a citizen of the world. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense, man. And actually kind of deeply resonates with me. It's almost like two sides of a coin for me where on the one side, it's you see yourself as a citizen of the of the world. And then the other side of that coin is you appreciate more where you're from and like the what makes you different, I guess. Um, like when I was back in visiting Bolivia and Peru, just like a deep sense of home and like a, an appreciation for uh, not just like speaking Spanish, but some of the cultural customs that, you know, that weren't in the U.S. And I just like really appreciated them on a level that I before um, I didn't, you know, and in fact, the, you know, when people asked me where I was from, like, I almost like emphasized the American side of who I was. And part of that's like, you know, assimilating into a, a new culture. And it was just a nice sense of like arriving, like, no, this is who I am. And, uh, and just learning to, to kind of embrace things that are, that are different or me, you know, might not be valued across cultures. Like the one, like in trying to think of like a specific example, but you know, one culture might value something that is actively not valued in another culture. And if you're living or from both of those, that can be a very interesting uh, balance to strike. Mm. So when does it, the story of when you actually moved to America, what, what happened there? Uh, well, I moved, I guess this was the third grade. I moved to the U.S. until till my freshman year in high school and then back to Latin America for high school and then back to the U.S. for, for college. So it's like uh, kind of two different uh, starting points to, to that question. But um, really kind of coming back to the U.S. the second time was when I kind of came back for, for good, if you will. Um, although now... You know, my, I definitely want to expand where I live and maybe have my business across continents. But for the next, you know, through college and then after that, those let's see, 15 years, 10 years, we're here in the in the D.C. area. Right. And where does life go from there? So you go to college. Where does that lead you? Yeah. So in uh, in college, I and this story is kind of representative of my life path because a lot of times people ask, well, how did you get to? where you're at now and it's a super hap slap like it wasn't planned but there was a form of planning i guess looking back in college you know you have to major in a, in a subject and i remember i was very interested in a lot of different things um but kind of literally signed up the last possible day to major because i was like <laughs> well i could do this i could do this um end up choosing uh philosophy purely because i was just interested in the like the kinds of people that i would be reading about and writing about and then uh at the end of college, again, the same kind of thing, like you have to kind of choose a job, right? So it's like internally, like just natural living, like I didn't want to choose a major, just like I didn't want to say pick a career or a job. But as that question is kind of forced on you, I kind of put, I put all my eggs in, in one basket to apply for this, this program called Teach for America, which is where you go teach at a kind of inner city school or school that's not doing so hot can be in the rural areas as well. And you, and they send people there to teach. And, uh, I did not get it and had something to do with like oversleeping my last interview, but, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, I put all my eggs in one basket. So I was fortunate to have parents that, uh, um, that, that I was able to live with them afterwards. And uh, I decided to travel a bit. My my younger brother was studying in Oxford, so I visited him, did some traveling in Europe, and then uh, some backpacking in Patagonia in Latin America. So that was about a year and a half stretch of time. And then, you know, all the while, I was still like 
actively like stimulated with my mind and in my body, meaning, you know, I was physically active. I was just an athlete. Uh, and then mentally I was looking at hmm, maybe go to neuroscience or for a master's program. So I was applying for that. Ultimately just had a lot of indecision. Like I just was, yeah, I could go anywhere. And each one seemed, I guess the way I was approaching the question was this is like my career, right? And my career's going to last <laughs> 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. So I like, I took that question seriously. Looking back, I think that got in the way, uh, certainly, but ended up just remember sitting, uh, just chilling in the, the family room one day. And, uh, I was kind of going back and forth between things. And my dad kind of came down and he's a very laid back supportive guy, but this, there was a different tone this time. I was like, all right, Derek, we gotta, <laughs> you gotta figure this question out. <laughs> you know? And I remember feeling, uh, basically like a piece of shit. Cause at this point I'm like 20, you know, three still living at home. And so I, I decided, well, let me just go back to the way I love making decisions. Just like, what do I absolutely know? I love, um, you know, like in college it was philosophy. And I was like, well, I love movement. So I decided to, to be a personal trainer and got a job. And then within a year became like the director of the whole personal training department. And I was really thriving. I was really enjoying in particular because I realized like the industry basically wasn't, I mean, the level of fitness it was producing and people was pretty low standard, right? So I was like, well, uh, I've always been driven by being the best and, and excellent. So it wasn't easy to shine. And through that process, though, like it just the industry seemed so shallow. So I was again in this place of like, yeah, I don't think this is for me. So anyways, through that process, I was training a client who and it was actually a partner at this firm for business intelligence and data analytics. And we became friends. And, uh, you know, she she got to know me and see that, you know, there's this whole other intellectual side to me. Um, and I was telling her that, yeah, this isn't really what I want to do with my life. I'm still figuring it out. She basically offered a position within her company, which I ended up uh, after going through their interview process, whatnot, going to. And so it was like a radical <laughs> 360 degree. I mean, yeah, massive shift. Yeah, from, you know, being active to then sitting at a desk, the whole nine to five Hmm. behind a computer thing. So, but, you know, at that point in time, I kind of had like a lot of like the conventional definition of success things. Like I was making a really good salary, especially for my age. You know, I'd moved to a really hip part of town. I had a girlfriend, all this was super fit because I kept that going. Um, But I was definitely uh, not fulfilled. And so I remember about like eight months in, I was sitting at my desk with my lunch because I would bring like chicken and broccoli <laughs> to, you know, to eat behind the desk type of thing. And I'm, I'm on YouTube and this uh, Discovery Channel thing for the Navy SEALs comes on. It's like a they basically followed a, a Navy SEAL class from beginning to end in the Discovery Channel documented whole thing. And so I'm sitting there watching this and immediately a deep, visceral, emotional, like, fuck yeah, this is what I got to do. You know, I'd always been interested in the military on some level because my brother, like I said, had already gone through uh, to, to be a Marine Corps officer. So it was in my consciousness, but this was like on a deep level. And it was like the first time where I was like all in on something. Literally that afternoon, I got in contact with this um, this coach who trains people up to, to pass selections and go through that process. And for the next year, like 12 months, you know, I would be training two, three hours a day, did all kinds of different like uh, evolutions to build myself up. Like I was just getting ready to, to sign my sign on the dotted line. That was long story short. Um, there was about 11 months in, I was talking to my coach and there's this event called Go Ruck Selections, which is at this point branded as the toughest um, endurance race on earth. At the time, I, it was simply this, basically the premise is that you have 
eight former special operation warriors, so people in the SEALs or Green Berets and, and other organizations, their job is to get you to quit and your job is to not quit. And, you know, you don't eat for 48 hours. You, you're you rucking, which is where you have a backpack with like 45 pounds plus added weight. You know, it's just, it's, yeah, it's just an interesting premise, right? You have this like PT test that you got to pass uh, and then the event starts and the PT test is itself you know, it's a 12 mile timed ruck, five mile run, and then push up, sit ups type of thing. And then you start the event, right? And uh, so I was using it. I came across it. Of course, I'm already on this vibe of wanting to join the special operations. So I'm totally all in. And uh, I'm like, yeah, let me just sign up for this. And this will be a good test for me um, on my road to, to this career that I that I want to do. And so, I, you know, I go down to the event, and there's 400 people that started. And after it's a lot of people. Yeah, and you pay like 400 bucks. It's like <laughs> <laughs> paying all this money to get your ass handed to yourself. It's kind of funny looking back on it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was driven by that kind of stuff, you know, like uh, being tested, you know, being part of something that's extremely, uh, you know, tip of the spear. Not many people make that. I thrived off those kind of, uh, that kind of marketing, I guess. But at the time, I would never have called it marketing. It was like ethos, you know, it was like spirit. Mm. So 400 people start within the... Up until the first 24 hours, there's uh, there's six of us left. And then at the 30-hour mark, there's four of us. And the last evolution was they just said, you know, take the sandbag. And by the way, it's like constant movement the whole time. Like you're not wrestling. In fact, they had this one thing that was a complete mind fuck where the morning of the second day, the guy comes out with Splenda packets and gives each person a Splenda packet, which is zero calories. <laughs> but in my disillusioned mind, I'm like, oh, fuck, you have food. Uh, and that just made things worse because like uh, zero calories, but you get the... Uh, illusion that you're getting energy so just mess with your biochemistry and then right after that um, the evolution was to walk down the beachhead and it's like an endless beachhead you can't see it end it just goes on and on and they just said put on your ruck and then toss another 60 pounds on top of that in the form of sand a sandbag and just walk and we'll tell you when to stop and uh that one just not knowing you know, it's one thing like if I know, all right, I got to just do this much more, I can break it up and, and mentally get to the next thing. But yeah, so I'm two, three hours down the, the beachhead, however much time, there's this one uh, uh, cadre next to me. And just the whole time, it's like, you're not worthy. Come on, man. You're too big for this. You're not going to make, you know, that kind of thing. And, and in my mind, I'm like, just basically my heart had already quit and my mind just couldn't bring to bear the shame of saying those words. And I just... Tears were running down my throat, you know, face and ended up quitting. And that completely broke me, right? Because like before, with all the training I'd been doing, I was just riding high on, I don't want to say ego, but like I felt solid. Like I was really physically fit. And I just honestly didn't think I had that in me to say the words I quit. And so that was a low point for me because, it, you know, from there I was like, well, if I can't do this, then how am I going to pass, you know, the whole Navy SEAL training pipeline, right? Maybe I'm not worthy for this and, and all that. Uh, Even though, so you finished in the top four of 400. <laughs> I did not see the sunny side of things. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a failure, an Edwin failure. Yeah, complete failure, right. exactly. And uh, it, it was amazing too. Like I couldn't even like it was just so difficult for me to just admit failure, you know, like it was just this intense loathing of, of failure and quitting self-loathing. Um, and so that was a really difficult time period for me. Cause, uh, you know, I, I wanted to figure out like, basically I just, I couldn't sign on the dotted line. You know, I was like, I need to know for sure that this is the right path for me. And so this event had just happened. And I, there was a part of me that didn't want to go like a very, like 
0.1% that didn't feel all in. And it had mainly to do with the fact that like, I felt if I was going to go down that pipeline, I wouldn't satisfy my intellectual side. And so I didn't know what to do with that. So in that period, I uh, started working, I, I found this uh, career coach at the time, Jen Gresham, who you know, Nathan, and uh, I signed up for her No Regrets Career Academy. And it was her first time ever working with a coach. But, you know, one of the big, kind of long story short, one of the big distinctions that she helped me see was, uh, you know, I was telling her about my motivations for joining the Navy SEALs and all this. And, you know, she just said to me, well, why don't you go create one of those arenas yourself? You know, like, why don't you go on a weekend and do one of those really intense go rug type things? And when she said that, I realized I had zero motivation to do it myself. But if it was from some other institution or group of people where they created the test and I had to go through and pass it, that's when I was motivated. Mm. And you know, I was I was just just super curious about why my motivation went from like a hundred to zero. Same physical activity, but if it came from me, motivation zero. If it came from a place of like being tested, motivation a hundred. Yeah, interesting. And uh, that's when I learned, you know, on a deeper emotional level, the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. And I realized, yeah, there's a lot of like extrinsically motivated desire in that goal. That's just timeline-wise, that's about six years ago. So basically another year of just kind of this like blah place, you know, like fuck. So was it, was it to the point you said you just didn't apply for the Navy at that point or you, you just thought, man, I, I need another year to get more prepared? Or No, it was more like uh, like a lot of my motivation to join was was lost mm. through both that event and – just through working with coaching and taking a deeper look at who I am and what I matter, I was realizing that a lot of my answers to those questions was, I don't know. And that sapped my energy temporarily. Um, but at the time I was like, man, I can't sign up for something. You gotta be fully committed. Right. Cause like a inch of doubt will be a mountain of doubt when you're in it, in that experience, you know? So I ended up not joining obviously. Um, but you know, there, I had this other side of me, this entrepreneurial energy. I'd always been an entrepreneur, you know, running a business in high school and college. So I decided, well, all right, I don't like corporate America. The Navy SEAL thing is not a hell yes at this point because I don't know my why. So let me just start a business in fitness because I didn't want to go back to the fitness industry because of how shallow it was. So I was like, well, I'm just going to start my own thing. So I started doing that. Uh, and um, kind of made a niche, uh, a name for myself and just combining things like a lot of the fitness industry, they would do, they have like a lot of the exercise part down, but not a lot of the, you have to go somewhere else for the nutrition. And so for me, it never made sense to divide it. So I created a business where I'd help people with their training and their nutrition. And then of course I added things. I was like, well, you also have to get your sleep down and so on and so forth. And then, um, also became part of the coaching team for precision nutrition, which is the kind of like the top dog for nutrition and for athletes and for general public as well. So just, you know, I, I channeled some of that need to be the best into my business. Um, and then, um, yeah, just to noticing I'm rambling and talking too much, Nathan, but to bring you up to speed, uh, in terms of timeline, it's only until recently, like the last year and a half where, you know, I basically took the rabbit hole deep on the whole fitness thing, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk more about, but I, it was only until recently where I was able to finally figure out what to do with all that energy that I had for the Navy SEALs. And it kind of happened, happenstance where, you know, I was telling my story to another coach and, 
the coach just asked me, he's like, man, I, when you talk about the Navy SEALs and that part of your story, you really light up. And, uh, and I was like, well, yeah, I mean, it was a really exciting time period for me. And then he asked this question. He was like, how could you create, you know, the Navy SEAL version of your coaching practice? And, uh, that got me really thinking. And I realized like it wasn't so much the job title Navy SEALs, the energy behind it, that drive to be in a brotherhood, to create intense experiences that transform who you are, so on and so forth. And so it was just a wonderful, like, becoming more whole. I was like, wow, I can take that energy that before the only way I knew how to outlet it was by doing like intense, you know, mountaineering or just intense events that resembled the Navy SEAL. And I was able to like channel it and be more whole. And, uh, and that really completely transformed my business. And that kind of takes me up to, to now. So now that that's what you've done, you have a business where you, you take people through that type of environment. Yeah. And, uh, more than that, it's it's. I think there's a real distinction between it, it, it's the energy behind what the the goal become a Navy SEAL representative. It's like what I mean by that is when I was in it, I was alive. Like my entire day, like everything was in support of this goal. And I think that's what I always wanted was to feel completely alive. Like, a, you know, we talk about this distinction of it's either a hell yes or it's a hell no. Well, it was a hell yes. So it's basically like t- helping people find out what their hell yes is in life. Um, and that's it. And it's, it's about energy more than it is about, you know, doing intense physical activity for some persons, for some people, it might be, that's the path for others that can come in, in different ways. Like, uh, you can almost think like, what well, what's the Navy SEAL version of human relationships? Like, what would it be like to have relationships where you're training yourself like you would for the Navy SEALs for that relationship? Like how many of us have relationships where that's the, that's how we're showing up, you know? So it's more, it's less about the, the intense physicality of, of the training and more about like who you are in the process. Yeah. I love this. I love this idea of of just actually figuring out where the motivation's coming from and it doesn't, it might not actually be the thing that you think it is. Yeah. You know, I'm curious, like, does that for you, like, have you, like what drives you, you know, like what's the motivation behind the things you're most passionate about? I think for me, it's, you know, I, I believe that everyone can live an extraordinary life. And so it's not too dissimilar to what you're saying about showing up to a relationship fully. I just believe that for me, I'm a super ordinary guy. I didn't do well at school. I got kicked out of my first job interview. You know, I'm a pretty ordinary guy, but I just learned to live life in an extraordinary way. And I think that's, accessible to everybody so i'm just uh, i'm thinking for myself you know what is it what was that motivation for me what's the motivation that drove me towards that yeah that that resonates a lot this idea of like what does an extraordinary what does it look like and feel like to live an extraordinary life because i do most work with with men you know and i think a common way that extraordinary is defined is it's attached to some form of like well, you have to have an accomplishment that's extraordinary. And oftentimes it's not necessarily an accomplishment that's extraordinary to you, but also to you and those whose opinions you care about. And I think that's an interesting one. Yeah, well, it's, it, for me, it's, you know, extraordinary just means beyond ordinary. So something that's unusual, something that's not, not ordinary. 
And so I think very much that something like inner peace, you know, it's an overused phrase, but I, I really believe in it. Like to be within peace within yourself is, I don't think that's ordinary. So actually, if you can find a way to live in the moment and live in such a way that you love yourself and you are at peace with yourself, to me, that's it. Forms part of an extraordinary life. It's not just about doing extraordinary things. Yeah, that's powerful, man, and spot on. You know, like I, that seems super true for me. You know, and unpacking that, you know, because I know, like, if if you were having a conversation with uh, me five years ago, I would be hearing extraordinary life through the lens of achievement, mm. and now I'm hearing it through the lens of actually if you define it for yourself it by definition becomes extraordinary because you're one of a kind you know totally yeah and if it's how many people achieve extraordinary things but still don't feel extraordinary or still don't feel like their life is extraordinary so to me that's not if you if you're doing incredible things and you're very successful yet you feel like shit that's not an extraordinary life that's not a that's not the life i would like to lead yeah, you know, it's one of the big things that I uh, that I believe in terms of what is fitness is this idea of emotional fitness. And part of what I mean by that is getting to the point where you're regularly making decisions from the place that you're talking about, where it's you're, you're doing something from a place of it's making you, it's connected to feelings that are important to you. And part of the process means getting to a point where you can make decisions in that way. You know, there's a distinction I like, which is it's not about feeling better, but it's about better feeling, you know, it's like, like growing your capability for not just feeling, feeling, <laughs> which is a thing, especially men. Like we're uh, taught, we're disconnected from that side of ourselves, right? Oh, you cry, you're a wimp or, you know, you have a flexible body, you know, not a lot of muscles and you're less of a man, things like that. Right. So part of it is unwinding, uh, the things that block us from our feeling. And then the second thing is like developing the language for understanding your feeling. And this quote popped up the other day, I probably butcher it, but he said, one of the de defining markers of emotional um, intelligence is to be able to differentiate a feeling that leads to procrastination, whether a feeling is a procrastination feeling or it's a feeling that you're out of congruence, which was important to you. Right. And so like, that's a, like to be able to interpret your feeling is a very useful skill so that you can differentiate, ah, that feeling is my procrastination feeling, so I'm not going to listen to it. Or no, that feeling is because it's actually not right for me, so I shouldn't do that. You know, if we don't have that rich, nuanced language or understanding of our own feelings, I think that throws us off from this, what, what, from what you're saying about living an ex extraordinary life. Um, does, that, does that resonate? Yeah, it does. It, it also, I think, I, I was just talking to, to Jen last week, actually, and we were doing some work around feelings and the idea that every feeling is attached to a thought. So you can't have a feeling without a thought first. And that was a huge insight for me because if you're feeling sad about something, if you find yourself feeling sad, and the thought could also be unconscious. So it's not something you've intentionally thought and then felt sad, but understanding that your feelings are all linked to your thoughts so that you actually have more power over them. We have power to let go of them and allow that feeling to subside. 
Yeah, man, that's uh, something very present in my in my life the last couple of years, in particular last six months. Um, have you heard of the three principles? Yeah, that's that, that was what we were talking about. Exactly that. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a book. I think it's called like One Thought Changes Everything, but it's it's basically a book about what you just said. And uh, I think it was Deepak Chopra who said the unconscious mind lives in the body, and uh, that you know a lot of what my work is about is this idea of embodiment, which is getting you out of your, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll do the cliche term, which is like, get out of your body, get out of your head and into your body. Now, what that means is if you start to do physical movement, like especially more high activity, high energy things, you basically can't help, but now you're, you're breathing heavy, your heart rate's, you know, heavy. So now you start to kind of focus on your physical movement. And when you focus on just your physical movement, and this could also be like a, just a mindful walk, where you're just like super aware of how the ground feels, how the air feels on your skin, but you're just very aware of your physical movement. That makes you aware of sensations, right? So you can like start to sense the foot on the ground, or you can start to sense the temperature of the air going in and out of the nose. And that awareness of sensation now starts to build awareness around emotions. So then you start to feel things more. And those emotions, you know, the the end goal of embodiment is now that makes you aware of your thoughts. And it's basically a way, a process to help people understand, not just intellectually, but like really from a very experiential point of view that every emotion has a thought behind it and if you can build awareness to the point where you no matter what you're feeling you notice what's the thought beneath it i mean that's a powerful life skill yeah that's the that's the piece to develop so you realize that you know, sometimes i'll feel well i think it's quite common to compare yourself right or just feel like there's some competition going on in life and that you so sometimes i'll feel man i'm not doing enough you know i'm not i'm not getting ahead and i realize oh you know, I've just chosen that that thought is just sitting there and I've, I'm now feeling shitty about myself. Yeah, that was just a thought that I can let go. I can let it pass. I don't have to hold on to that thought. I can let it go at any time and eventually that feeling will subside. It's really yeah. powerful. Yeah, I love that. And like I notice when my thinking starts going south and, and like for me, like I use my emotions, like they're my cue signal, mm. you know, I'm feeling shitty. Well, that's because I'm running a shitty thought loop. So I immediately go, okay, what's, <laughs> what am I thinking? What are more importantly, like what thought am I believing? Cause you can think a thought and not believe it. And it just goes, but as soon as you believe the thought, then you, you start to create an emotion out of it. And for me, it was like a mentor once told me this is like, when you start, when you notice that, breathe give the thought breath like literally breathe <laughs> you know and it's like it's just amazing and over time how quick you can just shift the the loop that's running in your brain and i use the word loop because i uh, recently was in conversation with tony dotino who he has a really interesting you know he did a lot of work with the with neuroscience program at mit and his big thing is the infinitely expandable brain and more specifically like the fact that the brain has an infinite capacity for thought and feeling meaning there's a completely unlimited number or types of thoughts and feelings you can have and our brain tends to have and i think it's like ninety thousand thoughts per day and i could be butchering that but there is a they've done a study studies on like how many thoughts we think a day. And I'm going to use the word ni- or 90,000 because I think that's it. And like 80% 
of those 90,000 are the same exact thoughts that you ran through your brain yesterday. So we're just kind of like stuck in a lot of these patterns, which to your point, I think that's the power of like having experiences that are outside your normal routine or, or conversing with people who you normally wouldn't do or just doing something different is that it just automatically kind of gets you into a different thought pattern. But it's just amazing how much of literally like 80% of what we thought and felt yesterday, we think and feel again today. And it's an illusion that that's the way it is. It's just, you know, the brain wants to conserve energy. So the easiest way to conserve energy is to think the same thing again. Yeah. Right. So, so it's basic biology. It's just about knowing how to transcend our, our more ancient brain centers. I find it's interesting. Like I sometimes, well, a lot of the time I have a deep coaching call with someone and at the end of it, they're exhausted, you know, and all we've been doing is talking, but we've been stretching out different parts of the brain or different thought patterns that they haven't explored before. And so it actually does take a lot more energy to do that. <laughs> yeah, man. That, have you, uh, I don't know if you ever experimented with this, but that's why like I'll, I'll break up precisely because it does stretch your brain and, you know, your brain consumes 25% of your total oxygen and the majority of your uh, carbohydrate is to feed the brain. Like it's a very expensive organ, you know? So, mm. so thinking and speaking are very expensive activities to do. So I'll, I'll like alternate maybe like 45 minutes of conversation and then have them have a client like go out and sprint or, or mm. we'll do some embodiment practice. So, because it's, it is taxing, right? Like we wouldn't do pushups on end and call that workout. You know, you got to rest. <laughs> For your body to, to be effective. Well, I'm fascinated by how you integrate all of this into your into your work. So it feels like, you know, at first glance that it is a lot of physical work, but how much of this I know this is something you're really passionate about, philosophy and different mindsets and different um belief systems and everything. So how do you integrate the embodiment with that in your business? Um yeah. I mean there's two angles to it. One from a practical perspective, like each individual session, uh, coaching conversation I'll have has embodiment work in it. Um, and it'll be based on like what, uh, you know, the, they say 70% of communication is nonverbal. So the more you go into embodiment, you start to see what the other person is communicating to you through their body. So I can tell, oh, this person's in a stuck thought pattern. So they need to get out of their head. Easiest way to do that is a high energy activity. Mm. Or if I notice that they're in like a fear slash anxiety um, mental state, I'll have them do something physical that involves a high, d depending on the person, a high fear anxiety state. So example for that one is this happened a couple of weeks ago. I had a client who we were, you know, a lot of times when people are stuck, um, it's probably because there's a feeling they're not willing to feel or there's something that they're afraid to do. And so a powerful like embodiment exercise, I'll just kind of get a sense of what they're afraid to do. And almost everybody has some fear with respect to other people. So <laughs> that's why I'm all my sessions I do in a, it's this really nice hotel lobby. Um, and now it's a secluded part where I do the actual conversation. But if I ever need to do something that involves people watching you, I have a bunch of people readily available, right? So I had this client basically drop down to his boxers and walk through the lobby and go up to the prettiest woman he could find and just introduce himself and then walk back. And the key stipulation was you had to walk 
right. And not like give in to the anxiety and start sprinting. And then B, you know, I had him as he's doing that, which obviously is going to trigger the holy shit feeling, which is fear slash anxiety. I just had him pay attention to where in his body that feeling comes. Right. So it's like heart rate or, you know, so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, I had no idea like the, where that would lead beyond, it would definitely get him out of that stuck pattern. You know, he came back and he was talking to everybody while he was still in his boxers. <laughs> it was like <laughs> the most, I, mean, I, I got so excited. I was like, shit, I want to do this. Yeah. But yeah, so that's like the, you know, in a session, that's how I'll use it. And it's very, very effective for that. From a larger philosophical perspective, the whole point is people are disconnected from their bodies. And they can look in all kinds of ways, but at a fundamental sense is, you know, most of our families and education system were never really taught like what actually is a physical body. And our language reflects that, right? We, we sometimes see our body as like a machine or this thing to just be used as opposed to a actual sensing organ mm. to give us wisdom, right? Yeah. And and so we're disconnected from pleasure, we're disconnected from desire. Um, like we we're talking about earlier, like and especially like men, we're disconnected from our own feelings, which are part of the body. Um, and then we're also disconnected from our minds, like what we we're just talking about, the fact that a thought precedes an emotion. If you don't know that, well, that's because well, we're not really taught this in our society. So we're really in our language too you'll hear a lot of people say like mind, body, spirit, and the very language makes you think, okay, we got this body and then we got this mind that's more ethereal. And then we got the spirit, which is even more ethereal. Like maybe it doesn't even exist in the body. And I think that does a real disservice because the mind is actually embodied, right? And that's the whole point of embodiment. So if you want to enhance anything to do with the mind, like being able to figure out a problem or how to speak or anything, then by seeing how your body is the vehicle by which to understand your mind is powerful. And that's the path. Um, and then ditto for the spirit. Right. Uh, so do you have questions about that? Does that make sense? Oh, I love it. I'm just, uh, not at all. Actually. I'm just sitting here listening to you talking because it's so fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also like, um, what's the, the, the quote by uh, St. Francis of Assisi says, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. And when I first heard that, I love that because <laughs> I think that's kind of the point, which is a lot of times words um, get in the way and whether that's in communication and how we speak or what we're reading, they really, it's almost like a, a filter between us and our actual experience of the world. So what I love about embodiment and the reason I use it a lot is it, well, A, there's no words <laughs> besides like basic instructions, like strip down your boxers and walk through the lobby. But then all after that is pure experience, you know, and uh, and that experience can teach you a lot just because this is present in my mind at the moment. Like with that guy, after he did that, he had always wanted to be a musician and um, he had this fear around going into the uh, studio to record a, a hip hop song. And so the next day he did that. And then the day after that, he calls me and he goes, you know, Derek, I actually don't want to be a musician. I just, it was just after I actually did that, after I actually confronted my fear, 
that's really what it was just about. It was just, you know, once he actually did it, he learned a lot about who he is. Um, and it was just surprising. Like this thing that he thought he should be, or he wanted to be ended up not being the thing, but he only knew that when he finally confronted that fear. And he only did that once he finally got in touch and wasn't afraid to feel the feelings, you know? Mm, and how many people are doing that? How many people are sitting at home with this big dream that they want to pursue, but they have this fear about doing it because it's going to take something. And really, if you just bypass the, what you get, get through the fear, go through the fear, maybe you don't want to do that thing at all, but you live with this thing out. Yeah. You live with this thing that you want to do some people for their whole lives. That's why I have so much respect for what you do, Nathan, is that you short circuit that, right? Like one conversation and we can nip that in the butt. Right. Mm. And, and it's, you're exactly right. In fact, um, there's a metaphor I love to use around this topic, which is the, do you know what koi fish are? Yeah. So I, I recently learned that koi fish, they grow to the size of the pond that they're in. So if you put koi fish in a small pond, they, they are small fish. If you put them in a bigger pond, they grow to the size of that pond and they even manage their reproductive cycle. So they'll procreate in proportion to the size of the pond that they're in. Mm, And when I first learned that, it struck me, huh, human beings are the same way, you know, except instead of physical limitations, it's our mind is the, is the walls of that pond. Like you're saying, you know, if you have fears that you haven't examined and confronted, then they operate like the walls of a koi fish pond and they keep you that size. But if you can push through them, all of a sudden your koi fish pond is a whole lot bigger. You know, and now if you just connect two things that we've been talking about, so if you connect that metaphor with the neuroscientist that I was telling you about, Tony Dottino, and the infinite capacity for thought, well, if our mind truly is infinitely um, expandable in terms of thought and feeling, then just think there's no limit to the size of pond that we can be playing in. And I think that's what, uh, what you're talking about, which is when you confront fears, you're hopping into bigger and bigger ponds. And then by definition, you grow to that size. Yeah. It, it opens up a new, it's, it's all about space, isn't it? Like if you can push through that fear, you open up a whole new space and then you can do that again, open another space and you realize actually the space is infinite that you can create for anything. And yeah. It, yeah if we, it's, the, it's the opposite of thinking the same thing 80% of the time every day. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's mind blowing. You had some. You were telling me the other day you had another exercise too on the physical front where you you got a whole bunch of people together and oh you tell the story you you know the one I'm oh, talking yeah. about yeah 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 um, yeah I mean it's the same kind of uh, theme you know where you have uh, so I had a, a group of guys and their only instruction was hey we're gonna go out for a run and uh, you know they, we each had the same playlist on that I had uh, created and. Um, so we're running and, and basically I'm leading and, and they're following behind me and it's, it's, you know, a chill pace, nothing crazy, but, uh, you know, after about an hour, uh, they're starting to go, okay, what the, what the fuck's going on here? You know, and unbeknownst to them, I had mapped out a marathon distance and none of us, including myself have done a marathon before. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. Um, you know, so this was a total like, well, let's just see if what I'm saying is actually true, right? Like <laughs> you got to practice what you preach, yeah. you know, on, but in this, this, capacity and so we ended up doing a uh, a marathon and and it was i mean it's the exactly thing like yeah we got part of it is we were all doing it together um part of it was like there was you know the the music like i had each man give me send me their top six songs 
you know, and so the playlists, we all had that and they were put in strategically, right. For like motivation and things like that. But what is motivation? You know, if, if, if we can motivate ourselves to keep going just a little bit longer, right. To end up running a marathon, you know, where did that motivation come from? We created it, you know? So it's like this idea that you can create unlimited uh source of motivation if you just can tap into different wells or different types of ponds uh you, you've scrambled that that part of the brain that you, like you said if, if you knew you were going to go out and run a marathon you, you wouldn't be able to do it or you, there'll be a part of your brain that says hey we haven't trained for that you're going to break the body we can't do this but if you if you don't know you're running a marathon you kind of bypass that that shut off valve <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And you know, what was surprising about that too, was the effect. I mean, even though I was leading this, the effect was there for me as well in a very particular sense, because I, you know, uh, part of my background is, is being a strength and conditioning coach and, you know, just being in conversation with some of the best strength and conditioning people in this world, right? Like in that world, you know that you got to strategically program for something, for anything, right? So like if you want to run a marathon, well then if you're going to do it a year from now, you work backwards and you you strategically increase your mileage week over week so that your body's adapting, the whole stress adaptation response. And to be very clear, that's smart training. I don't, uh, it, it's not smart to just go out and run a marathon all the time. But uh, the point being here is like in my mind, knowing that I was like, hmm, my body's probably going to be pretty destroyed after this marathon because I was definitely not building up to this slowly. What surprised me was how fresh I felt and even the other guys. Now, I don't think there's a hard and fast principle to draw from this, but I think the point being is it's the whole thing like if you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. It's the same thing. Like if I had believed that my body would be destroyed, then that might've been the case, but be, I might've actually felt being more sore than I actually was. But because I was so, uh, my, my world had been so expanded and there was such a deeply connecting and powerful experience with those other guys. Like even the week, I mean, don't get me wrong. I was definitely sore, but not nearly as much as I thought. And, and especially for some of the other guys who like, if I probably said, we're going to go run a marathon. They probably would have told me, no, my doctor says I should never do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, that's fascinating. I, this, I heard Jesse Isla speak the other day. He wrote a book called living with a seal and he had a Navy seal come and live with him for a month, I think. And the first thing the guy did was get him to do pull-ups. And I think he did uh, eight pull-ups or 10 pull-ups on the first go. And he said, give me another give me another round and he did like four and he stood again, gave him one and then to the point where he couldn't do anymore. And Jesse said, yeah, I'm done. You know, that's, that's all I can do. And the Navy SEAL said to him, well, we're not leaving until you've done a hundred. And he was like, well, I, I, I can't. And he said, well, it's going to be a long night then. we're going to be here all night. And they did a hundred. He did a hundred. Took him like five hours or whatever. Just did one at a time. And he said, like, he remembers thinking, wow, like, I was going to give up at like 15. I thought my limit was 15 and I did a hundred. Like I, I thought I failed at 15. That was my absolute limit. And I went on to do a hundred. If I'm, if I'm doing that in one tiny physical exercise, like where am I doing that in the rest of my life? Hmm. Wow. Damn, that's powerful, man. Yeah, that really shifted me. And, and the Navy SEAL said, he put it slightly differently. He said, when you, when you think you're done, emotionally physically anything you're only at about 40 percent capacity and just remember that when you're about to give up 
you just uh, created a whole bunch of um, ideas for me to start applying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I won't charge for those. You can add those to your business for free. <laughs> Thank you, sir. So where yeah. can people uh, reach out to you? If people want to come and experience this, uh, I know you're based in Washington, but if people want to experience your work, what's the easiest way to find you? Yeah, the best way is uh, just directly via email. Do you want me to say it now? or Sure, yeah. In the notes? I can yeah, do so both. it's uh, my first name, Derek, D-E-R-I-C-K, uh, at EliteManProgram.com. Awesome. Yeah, we'll put that in the notes so people can find it easily. I could talk to you for hours. So I hope you'll, you'll come back on the show and we can, we can continue the conversation. Uh, I would, would love to. Yeah, for sure. The last question we ask every man is about the dark side. I'm interested in your, your thoughts on this. What's the dark side in you that you have to watch out for? And have you found a way to embrace that part of yourself? Yeah, that's, uh, I love that question in a twisted kind of way because <laughs> I never want to actually uh, say it out loud. Yeah, um, I appreciate it. It's challenging. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's Derek the bullshitter um, is my dark side. It's, uh, it's lying, you know, um, and it can come in subtle ways. I mean, there's definitely the times when it's just a straight up bold faced lie. <laughs> Um, and then there's the more nuanced ways where I'm lying to myself about how I feel something like saying yes when I actually mean no, or, you know, in conversation, just, yeah, speaking from a place that it's not who I really am, but I'm like shaped by the people I'm around. And, uh, and it gets even worse when I'm like aware of that. And I don't actually just pause, you know, like just get out of that situation, breathe, come back in into my authentic self, which for me just means being like grounded in how do I actually feel about this, about this person or about this subject. Um, and, uh, you know, my mind is very creative at bullshitting myself. I mean, if, if I didn't have any morals, I would definitely be like a snakeskin snakes oil salesman. You know, I, I'd be really good at that. <laughs> and uh, it's been a process to embrace it. I mean, for the longest time I didn't embrace it. I just, it was just like my dark side, you know, uh, and I, I, there was shame around it, you know, and, especially doing like deep work with myself. And, and more recently I had this experience where I was, uh, in my men's group and, uh, it's like, uh, there was like, maybe 60, 60 guys, um, you know, who had just gotten to know. And, uh, we were doing this exercise where the, the leader, uh, the head guy basically went around to each man and he would just like look into you and say, all right, you got to do a skit, a two minute skit on whatever it is that he saw. And, you know, he's going around and he comes to me and, uh, again, we just kind of met, you know, and he looks at me and goes, I want you to do a piece on lying. And I was like, holy fuck, <laughs> how did this guy, why did he say that? Like, I feel like I was being authentic. Like, why did he see that in me? You know? And, uh, and so I did this skit where, you know, he, I kind of owned it. I was like, where are some of the biggest places where I show up as the bullshitter? And, uh, you know, and it was a powerful experience as I was actually acting this out and, uh, you know, and, and to be received, like just to other be in a room where other men are doing the same thing for their for their dark sides. You know, and I've, I've that was a healing experience. And in general, as I went deeper on the question, like, what do I really, really want? Like, what do I actually care about? And the deeper and deeper and deeper I go into that question, the more I'm able to embrace my, my, my dark side. Um, and I realized, and partly too, I because the mind is such a big part of my 
my work and one of my mentors is a psychotherapist and I've done deep work with him. And, uh, you know, through that work, uh, I realized that a big part of where that came from for me, you know, as I mentioned, as a third culture kid kind of moving around, you know, it's just exhausting to have to make friends and get people to like you again and again and again. Um, I mean, most people would describe me as a people person and there's that, there's, that's true, but I also, I need my, my solitude big time, you know? So a lot of where that came from was just this need to be liked. Um, you know, and I would just, whether it's exaggerated an accomplishment or straight up lie about something, you know, it, it, it allowed me to get that result, uh, quickly. So that pattern kind of got reinforced. It was healing to just go back. Ah, all right. This is where it came from in childhood and, and realizing that it came from a good place. This need to be liked is very human and it's a very good thing. And then, the other piece of kind of that dark side is I was always that kind of person who would I have very different kinds of friends. Uh, you know, I, I had the my athlete jock friends and then my intellectual friends and then uh, just groups that don't didn't mix with each other, but I mixed well with them, you know. And so, you know, when I'm with my jock friends, I would like overemphasize or not overemphasize, but just like I bonded with them on certain parts of me. But they because they didn't were connected with their other sides, but I was like I would underemphasize those. So that was a way I was being inauthentic. And I realized like, you know, in middle school and high school, just being, you know, in many different social circles that again, that pattern of being inauthentic with myself was reinforced because it allowed me to just, uh, you know, smoothly navigate all kinds of different social environments. So, um, I learned to embrace that I am, all kinds of different things, you know? Yeah. I'm your manly jock. And I'm also kind of guy who drink tea with the candlelight and read a book, you know, that's, that's me, you know? Um, there'll be times when I'm having sex a lot and then I'll go a year without having sex. That's all me, you know? Um, so as I embraced who I am, that really helped me look at the dark side, especially in fact, the last thing I'll say is like, it's because I embraced my dark side that I uh, became an authentic person. So I, I just really love that question. And it's healing just to be talking to you about it because, <laughs> you know, I couldn't have this kind of conversation. Like if you asked me this question even a year ago, I'd probably not say I was a bullshitter. I'd give you some other dark side that's not really my dark side, you know, mm. <laughs> but uh, but this is it. Yeah, oh, thank you. I appreciate it. I, I remember Rich asking me the question, you know, say something, tell us something you don't want us to know about you. And, you know, about five seconds later, he said, now you're going through the list of all the things you don't want us to know about you. And you're trying to find the best one, <laughs> the one that, that feels vulnerable, but it's not too bad. It doesn't feel too risky. He said, don't use that one. Go right to the bottom and find the one that you want to share. But I totally get the, the bullshit one. I went to uh, like a pretty middle class primary school, elementary school, and then went to a rich kid's private school uh, for high school. And we weren't rich by any street. So I remember just having to tweak everything up to fit in, you know, like uh, exaggerate everything. You just reminded me of a story when you were talking about that, about when one of my friends was dad or something was dropping me off at home. I got him to drop me off in front of like the big house at the end of the street <laughs> to kind of pretend that it was our house then waited for them to drive off and then walk down to our house. And it seems so silly to say it now, but that was like a real habit that I developed that I had to get out of and I still do it sometimes. And it, 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 I laugh at myself because it makes no sense. You know, I do this kind of rounding up of numbers and stuff to exaggerate things. 
yeah, I appreciate you bringing that into the light for me as well. Yeah, it sounds like we would have been best friends in high school. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah, but we'd never. You have to have one person that believes the bullshit. I think in the friendship, you can't have two bullshitters. Or it's, <laughs> it just goes on for infinity. <laughs> Oh, that yeah. is such a good point. yeah. Awesome, thanks, man. I appreciate you coming on the show. It's been been great, and it's good to get to know you a little bit better. And I, you know, hope have you back again soon. Yeah, thank you, brother. I've really enjoyed this, um, and absolutely look forward to to many more. Absolutely, thanks, man. There you have it, folks. My conversation with the wonderful Derek Deal. You can reach out to Derek by email. I'll put all those details in the show notes and share this episode around. Tell your friends, forward the email, like the Facebook posts. If you can do anything to help the show, I will be so, so appreciative. And we'll be back next week with episode number 46 of The Nathan Seawood Show. That was The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. This episode has been brought to you by my friends at Unsettled. Unsettled is a 30-day co-working retreat experience for entrepreneurs, creatives, freelancers, and folks going through intentional transitions. They have incredible retreats all around the world, Portugal, Bali, Colombia, Nicaragua, just to name a few. I did Medellin in Colombia last year, blew my mind. A great bunch of people there, lots of really cool local experiences, beautiful office to work from, a lovely apartment. They organize it all, guys. So go to beunsettled.co slash Nathan, and I'm going to get $100 off your first trip. So do yourself a favor, check out beunsettled.co slash Nathan, and prepare for one of the best months of your life.